Thanks for tuning in to Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Steve Ray, your host, and this podcast features interviews with the people actually making a difference in the Italian wine market in America, their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. And I'll be adding a practical focus to the conversation based on my 30 years in the business. So if you're interested in not just learning how, but also how else, then this pod is for you. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm your host, Steve Ray, and this week we have as a guest Stacy Slinkert. I could start off by saying, and will start off by saying that, that Stacy's a wine writer, and I've known her for years, not real well, but this has turned out to be a great opportunity to get to know us. So Stacy, tell us a little bit about yourself from a bio point of view, but also how you got into the whole journalism thing and kind of where you are today. Sure, sure. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Basically, I did an undergrad degree in biology and environmental health at Colorado State and then thought I'd go to vet school and realized that that was going to be a lot more money and time and kind of swerved and did my master's in public health at the University of Northern Colorado. I did a couple internships right after that, mostly in the hospital setting and community health setting and realized quickly that those were not fun internships. So I was on a mission to find a fun internship. And well, internship, my point of view on that is it's slavery. Well, it was and it was somebody work and not paying them. That's well, that was my other component. I really wanted to be paid and I wanted it to be fun. So these are two criteria that were hard to fit. And luckily, luckily for me, we have Anheuser-Busch breweries here locally in Fort Collins, Colorado. And I applied. Um, well, actually, I just called them and asked them if I could come intern for them because I thought they surely could use a corporate wellness intern. And so I went, um, did their corporate wellness piece, and then they stuck me in OSHA compliance. And that was a, a terrible fit. And I, but I didn't know that until I tried it. I was like, oh, no, this is another terrible fit. But I kept being drawn over to the fermentation side. And if you've ever been to one of the Anheuser-Busch breweries, they do these fantastic tours. Um, of their fermentation and all the processes. And I just thought, this is this is the fun side of the house. So I do all I could to get over there. Fast forward probably two years, and I ended up doing a lot of their communications and writing for that specific brewery. And it was back in the kind of the old guard where Anheuser-Busch was still this all-American company doing some really cool things in advertising, really innovative and, and energetic. And so I started writing their communications for um, the brewery-specific piece and then working with St. Louis. And I thought, gosh, I really like this writing piece and I really like fermentation. And along this time, we started having a family and I thought it would be great if I could just write from home on my own time. And So you were country before country was cool. And Exactly. Exactly. I was desperate. I was like, I need to still use this side of my brain. <laughs> well, if you're a wine writer, you remain that way. <laughs> so anyways, I ended up taking um, a position with about.com. About.com had just come online and they had a channel for everything. It was like they, they were the expert of expert of barbecue or how to change your oil, how to buy wine. Mine, it was like Google before Google. It was the place you went to when you had questions. Yeah. Exactly. So they were hand in hand with Google. So anything you wrote ended up on the first page of Google, no matter what it was. You just had to throw two, you know, search words in there and boom, there you were. So it was it was super easy to just to gain traffic and, and footing. So I did that for a few years and then 
it was a good fit because I was just one step ahead of the audience. Like they were all beginners and I was like beginner plus one. And all of a sudden these wine samples started coming in. I thought, oh, well, this is, this is incentive. I, I would really like to continue getting free wine. And then trips started coming in and I thought, this is great. So there's opportunities to travel to the different regions and learn from the people that are actually making the wine and taking care of the vineyards. And that's really where the education started, was going to the different wine regions and being taken around by wine councils to understand what was going on, regionally specific, um, varietally specific. And one of my one of my first trips, I was in Italy, and I knew the internet was going to be a little bit shaky in the region I was in. And so I thought, I will take my, my security blanket, which was wine for dummies. You know, Ed McCarthy and Mary Ewing Mulligan have done so many versions of it. They're fantastic writers. They hit the beginner. And I'm on this trip and I know nobody in the industry. I I know nobody. And I'm noticing that one of the writers on this trip, she's super, super engaged. She's got her laptop. She's taking these extensive notes and I've got my like cute journal and I'm writing down a few things that I think might matter, but I don't know. And the other people on the trip were talking about Mary and they're like, hey, Mary, how's the book coming? You know, and she's like, oh, yeah, I'm working on, I don't know if it's second, third, fourth edition. And, and later one night at dinner, I was like, well, what book are you writing about? And she's like, oh, you know, my husband and I, we write wine for dummies. I'm like, oh, yes. Yeah, I've heard of that. I actually got it in my suitcase, but I won't tell you that. And so I thought, oh, my gosh, I am so out of my league. What am I doing here? I don't even I don't even know what these grapes are that they're saying. And um, so it became quickly, quickly apparent that I needed to fill in some significant gaps. And at that point, I did some courses down in Denver with the International Wine Guild and um, pursued my WSCT and Society of Wine Educators and started filling in just knowledge gaps and, and understanding. And, and those courses actually became springboards for articles. If I was really interested in a, in a piece, um, maybe it was about wine flaws, I would, I would write on wine flaws or whatever I was learning, I was writing. So in that kind of that mindset of if you really want to know something, you teach. Teach it, right. Yeah, man, being one step ahead. My wife was a teacher and she had said that you only need to be there. Just one step ahead. Just one step ahead. And it made it the writing more approachable was, was the feedback that I got. It was like, oh, I get it. I was like, well, I'm glad you get it because I just got it. So <laughs> it worked out. Um, so that was my wine for dummies experience. And I just like, wow, I'm in, I'm in with the big leagues. Ironically, probably seven or eight years later, I was commissioned to write Idiot's Guide to Wine, which is not nearly as prestigious as Wine for Dummies, but I was given a quick two-month turnaround time to write the next edition of Idiot's Guide for Wine. And that at that point, I was like, I will never write a book again. <laughs> Why? I'm into articles. Oh, my gosh. Having written one, I, I kind of know the answer, but I'd like to hear you articulate it. It was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. And then you have these editors, and they're not just like article editors. They're like full-on book editors. And in my mind, she's chopping away, and I'm thinking – it's so much easier to edit than create. And all you're doing is editing, editing, editing. And um, to add salt to the wound, the opening the opening line of the book, I was like, I don't like this. I really like how I had it. And she's like, no, no, no. It went to print and there was like two grammatical errors that they couldn't change. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is, you know, you've spent all this time, you really crunched to get it done. And then just teeny tiny grammar errors that just blow it apart. So um, 
that was my, my first and my last book. And I've just discovered for me that I really prefer the long form writing. I'm not I mean, I'll do some short form, but I, I really like the longer form where you have a chance to build out a concept where you have a chance to dig a little deeper. So for me, long form is more of the articles, you know, one to two, three pages, um, anywhere from 500 to 1500 words typically is where I'm, I'm doing the long form. Short form is just shorter blurbs that you'll see a lot of times on social media, just a quick, just a quick hit. Like this is a hit and run. This is what we're talking about real quick, but here's a picture. And this picture is actually worth a thousand words and I've got a caption below it. So that's kind of, that's more of where I've gone. Um, so after about.com, they kind of splintered into several different towers and alongside that writing, I started to look at other places and pitching stories and learning how, how to pitch a story because I hadn't had to. With about, you just it, it kind of turned into a little bit more of a content mill where you're just writing, 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 and you just, you know, have so many articles that you have to write per month. I don't remember what that was. It kind of, it changed over the time I was there to the point where I was like, I'm just writing so many things that I, I don't feel like the quality is here. I'm just having to do quantity. And it was still trying to play to the Google algorithms, which had just changed dramatically. And then about.com decided, and I think this is a really good choice, that, hey, people that are looking for, you know, the latest cocktail recipe or wine are not looking, you know, to change their oil in four steps on the same site. So they, they did uh, probably four or five different towers. And one was spruce.com that dealt with more food, wine, home kind of stuff. And then they did like very well, which is more of health issues. And I think that model has worked out really well. About that time, I was kind of peeling out and doing other things and looking for other opportunities. And so started pitching stories to other places. All right, we'll get back to that. But uh, but then jump forward, you, you are, are writing for Decanter now, which is a very prestigious magazine, carries a hell of a lot more weight even than about.com <laughs> did, certainly in the wine industry. How'd that come about? Well, I was I was going on a media trip to Monterey, and I was looking for an option to write it, uh, more of a travel type of story. Here are the wineries, here are the places to hit, here's what's good, here's what you must do. And I just thought, I, you know, I'm going to pitch it to Decanter. I just, why not? I, I've been pitching to kind of I don't know, like second tier outlets that have been really fun. But what if, what if the cancer took it? Reach a little higher. Yeah, no, I get it. I got a couple of editors' names. I saw the one that was the editor over um, the Americas and I sent her kind of my idea for the story and what we could do. And of course said, I'll do it, all of this and or anything else that you think might be a good fit. So here's my idea, but I'm totally flexible if you'll take the writing. <laughs> and, and she responded back and said, we'd love a story. Here's what we'd like. We'd like, you know, so many words, so many pictures, and this is what we'll feature. And here's an example of what I'm hoping for. And I thought, okay, great. I can work with an example. I can, I have a template. I have kind of a style guide. I understand the audience, which was very different than anything I'd written for. Mostly I was writing for the beginner to intermediate consumer. Right. Now you're talking to wine geeks or knowledgeable wine people. Yes. So there was, I mean, pressure was on. I thought, oh gosh, I've got to really double check myself. I'll, I'll whip out my wine for dummies and, and make sure I'm writing everything right. And we went um, went from there. So you still reference wine for dummies, even though you wrote wine for idiots? Oh gosh. <laughs> I haven't I haven't lately. Really what I reference all the time is I love what to drink with what you eat. Have you ever seen that book? It's fantastic. It's by the Dornbergs. Oh no, I know them. Yeah. Okay. So I love that book and I still reference regularly my 
Society of Wine Educators, CSW, but it's a fantastic layout. It's I try to get their new one every year. It's just really, really good to know what's going on right now and at which regions. Let me jump in on that. So in, in olden days, like what you're talking about, and you wanted to know something, you had to look it up in a book. And libraries had things like card catalogs. Nobody's seen those in a long time, but that's kind of what we used to do. Now, everything that you need to know is literally at your fingertips on a cell phone. You don't need to memorize and know all this stuff anymore. You just need to know how to look for it. And in fact, even how, how to look for it has changed dramatically now with label recognition, like facial recognition tools and Wine Searcher and Vivino are two examples of that. You don't even need to figure out how to write down Chateau Cheval Blanc. You, you can just take a picture of it and it'll generally you know, take you where you want to go or at least to the kind of information that, that you want. So the way people are looking at for information is changing. The way people are looking at information is changing. And there's also a generational shift. And I'd say that's two generations. You know, it's it's 50 years worth of uh, there's the baby boomers and then there's the ones that followed. And now there's the millennials. And everybody has a, a different way of doing that. Here you are writing for a print publication, the decanter that's known as a print publication. Granted, it's UK based and it does have a European focus, but still in all very much print. And were you doing print or were you doing um, electronic and, and or were the things you're doing segregated by those terms? With decanter right now, currently, or before decanter? Because before decanter, everything was online. I mean, 90% of what I was doing was an online outlet. And then decanter, most of what I'm doing is online, but there have been some features where I've contributed that are in their print publication, which has been super fun. So that's it's kind of been a mix there, but mostly online. Okay, so the, the difference being in a print publication, there's literally a limitation on space with online. It's, you know, you just keep scrolled down. Well, my editor there, she's pretty firm. She's, she's, she wants what she wants and she, she keeps, she holds you to it on her word count on, online, which I think is really good because you, it, it forces you to be a concise, clear writer and you can go on and on and on. But if, if you've got someone that's watching your tail and selling, telling you, nope, Trim it up here. Be be more focused here. This isn't this isn't relevant. That's helpful. Yeah, I, and I think well, I was getting towards that, but that's really kind of a point I wanted to make is that writing without an editor is like you know flying without instruments. You, you you're getting no feedback of where you are, or what's going on, or what's good, or what people like or don't like, or fit the environment in in which you're at. And I suppose it could be good, but that's the model. And so things that were totally unacceptable even 10 years ago, like typos and uh, grammatical errors, stuff not only is ignored, it's expected. Yeah, I think that's almost a, a feature of texting. Yeah, it's like, te you know, we don't, we're like, well, you know what I mean? I don't need to put my apostrophe S. I even do that with my kids. I'm like, I am going to make a point of putting apostrophe S's and periods here, just so you see what it should look like. Our English language should look like this, even in a text, <laughs> like emoji back, you know? <laughs> so How's that working out for you? Not, not so good, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's not. We're, we're still, but I, I do have good writers in my house. So that's, maybe it's, maybe something's rubbing off. We'll see. Back to my point about, you know, magazines and the readership of magazines. Uh, being such a, a small percentage of online reach and access and so forth. But the payment for writers, it's, it's pretty lousy. Never was great. Now it's worse and there's fewer outlets for it. There's a lot more people contending for it. We went through a period when I first met you was where bloggers were the thing. And uh, I, I would now say something along the lines that influencers have 
displaced or replaced bloggers, although I think we all still I still blog. You do too, I think, right? Not, the, not as much. I um, Okay, well, there you go. So what? it's changed. It has changed. Well, and I guess I kind of even see it even farther back from bloggers. I mean, you started off with the wine critics. It used to be mainly Robert Parker and Wine Spectator, but then they all had folks that kind of splintered off from them. You had James Suckling go his own way from Wine Spectator, and he kind of brought his group of tasters, and his tasting team was built. And then you had Antonio kind of splinter off from Parker's Wine Advocate, and he had his group of tasters. And then you ended up getting people that were just running through thousands of wines a year, and they're they're writing and scoring wines, but their actual editing and education in terms of the writing about the wines became less and less. So, and and some now some of these old school publications are even charging producers to use their publication ratings um, as an added income stream. They're holding these these events that you know they're requiring you know they're producers to come and pay to be part of their events. And then they've got huge advertising, which has always been that. But even before that, I mean, the newspaper, you know, everybody used to have like a newspaper and a wine columnist, not everybody, but the bigger cities. And so you had this newspaper columnist that was paid a full-time salary to write. And, but that was a very limited gig because how many newspapers could afford a, a single columnist to write about food and wine. And those, those advertising dollars have gone and, and really funded a lot of the social media advertising but I mean, even before that, the internet has opened up so much opportunity. Websites have popped up with beginner's guides and easy opportunities for consumers to engage and, and chat um, and have actual discussions with brands that they're interested in. It used to be more of a top-down conversations where you had the experts and then you had the consumers and, and the people who were you know, reading from the experts. And now it's more linear, a linear conversation. And it's a back and forth about wine, whether it's the bloggers and the experts, the industry folks and the consumers. There's just this real horizontal linear conversation going on, which I think is good. So I was just at Vinitaly last week, and I was having a conversation with somebody, and we were exploring the issue of separating church versus state editorial versus advertising in you know the old millennium in the 1900s. It's it's still a valid concern, and I think one of the complicating issues that I deal with all the time is that you know I'm I'm mostly dealing in 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 the world of trade people, not in consumers, and commercial news is news, right? The fact that it's commercial is what makes it news, not is, makes it not good news. So it's a very different environment in which to write. I'm trying to do less of original content there and, and let my colleagues like you who do it for a living make money at it and try not to take bread out of, out of their mouths. But by the same token, there's this whole issue of church and state and the commercial value of what you're doing. At the end of the day, you know, the, 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 the simple version of it, if you got an article, got a mention in our, in my spectator, well, Parker, take it back there. If you got over a 90 in Parker, you couldn't buy it. And if you got below a 90 in Parker, you couldn't sell it. It was that simple, right? It's no longer, maybe it never was that simple, but still in all the commercial impact of those publications has changed. And I, the way I phrase it is the millennial, they don't care what the pundits say. They care what their peers say. So there's no longer this level of people between us and and wine in terms of, you know, engaging and relating to it. You don't need someone to explain it and bless it and tell you this is good and this is not. It's what your friends say. Can you talk about? Sure, sure. And I, and I think that's really, it's word of mouth, but it's also word of picture. So people are posting on Instagram, hey, having a great time here. And here's my bottle of rosé. It's rosé all day, you know. And, oh, I wonder if they, so they're drinking that. I might as well drink that. Um, yeah, so that, that 
peer-to-peer connection, I think, is significant. But also, I think blogs kind of pave the way for that. So now everyone is an expert, or at least willing to be one, and engage new wine lovers and, and share real-time what they're drinking and why. And I think that's had a huge impact on on sales at, at more of the consumer level. Um, yeah, I think I think that's huge. So uh, let me kind of jump in on the on the um, um, influencer thing. I, I guess I knew of them, or certainly conceptually, but I was on uh, once again make people jealous here on another trip, yet another trip to Italy. Which is the real payment for writing about wine? <laughs> for me, yeah, but uh, for me, the difference is I'm retired, so I not only have the time, but I no longer need the money. That's yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> But so I met this young lady uh, who is an influencer, and I learned just an incredible amount about social media that I didn't know and how to do visuals and all that kind of stuff. Not that I want to become an expert in it at all, but at least that I can understand it better. And when she was sharing me the kind of money that she was making, it was more like the difference between advertising and PR. You know, in PR, you're trying to generate copy that doesn't get paid for, but has great value. In the case of advertising, it does get paid for and eh, has some value, but it's really hard to, to pinpoint it. But all of, a sudden it was, all of a sudden, it was a legitimate thing other than, you know, blogging for and, and hoping that money would tinkle down, you know, in, into your coffer. So it's a real deal now. What's next? Is, is something going to displace influencers? I know that's that's a really good question. I, th- I think social media has made us more nimble and will continue to do so, but it also has to be kept in check or you risk missing the entire experience um, you're trying to share. And this this kind of plays to the point of, of influencers as well, which I feel like can be a mixed bag. For example, there's a couple quick stories. I, I traveled on a trip to France, media trip to France. I had never heard the word influencer before. It was a couple of years back. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I have four teens. They're like influencers. I'm, I'm just the mom. You know, I was on this trip, this influencer. And I thought, oh gosh, what's an influencer? And I was quickly educated. And my take on it with, with this one, very one example, I mean, there's there's MWs that are are using social media in such a way that they're educating, they're inspiring. They are really teaching and and communicating the stories behind these really wonderful brands. I think there's some that are doing really, really great work. My The other side of it is a little bit darker side. This gal was taking fantastic pictures in the vineyard, holding the, I mean, just beautiful pictures. She's very photogenic. She was delightful as a person. Her wine knowledge was not there, but even worse, she was paying to have thousands of bots follow her. So how do you know as, you know, somebody that's a producer that's paying for advertising that this is a legitimate influence? Like her reach is as as wide and as deep as she says she is. I I don't know because on the backside, you're going to have to do a lot of work on analytics to see are these legitimate people? Are you going to have to pay to find that out and research your influencers? Your clients have the interest or ability to, to suss that out and just take it. I remember ages ago and, you know, a thousand years ago where we used to measure followers as though that were a number that had any value to anybody. It was a number. It just didn't have Right. Well, and, and to play to that point too, sometimes, and I it may be generational, it may not, but there was a time I was on a trip with Symington Wine Estates and we were in Duro, the Duro Valley, having this, they opened up this beautiful bottle from like 1964 and it was- I love it when that happens. (laughs) 
I, I love it too. And they didn't, they were, they were talking about this wine. This was a piece of history because he was, he was sharing this, the winemaker sharing, Hey, this is a bottle that was here before we had electricity in this building or in this Valley. I'm like, Oh my gosh, we are getting to taste this piece of history. What a gift that he would share it with eight of us. I mean, they're what a gift, but on the one hand, you have so many, you've got this group that's so busy clicking pictures of themselves with the bottle that they have completely missed the experience. They've completely missed the gift and the bottle because they're so worried about how it's going to look and how they're going to share. Instead of just enjoying this incredible gift, this moment with this winemaker, his generosity, his spirit. I mean, they, they don't have a ton of those bottle, bottles just sitting around. They, you know, they're limited. And he chose to share that with us. And I just, I feel like there's a balance here. We've got to be able to communicate while not missing the experience ourselves, or it's going to be really tough to write about and be able to share some pictures, you know, here and there. But and I'm, I'm probably more old school now. And I, I can't believe I'm, I'm the old school one now where it's like, no, no, use the words and add the, use the pictures as spice instead of making the picture everything. And, you know, the words are just a. Wow. That's a really interesting perspective on it. You know, one uh, on, on a, a commercial way of looking at that, um, one of the things I like to say is, you know, if we can't bring people to wherever, Duro Valley or um, you know, Verona, um, how can we bring that place to them? And the internet gives us all the tools to do that. But I think the the ability to tell stories, that storytelling through that medium is still a critical and professional thing. And when you do it well, you can make it resonate. And if it resonates, they'll talk to each other about it. And you know, very simply, what we're trying to do is to get people to tell your story through in their words, to other people. Exactly, exactly. And pictures are a shortcut to that, but I think the words really fill in the blank and fill in the experience, so it's more of a holistic communication. Speaking of which, we we talked about a number of examples, and you had a couple you thought might be right, and one of them was Terlato and Old Wines and Black Dress. Can you tell me that story? Oh, yes, yes. With it's actually it's Cantina Terlano in Alto Adige, and on one of the trips they had this really this great glass of wine that they poured for all of us. But um, they had the wines poured before we came in. The glasses were completely black. I visited that booth at Vanitaly last week. Did you? Did they have the black glass? No. Oh gosh, you should have requested the black glass. I'm gonna have to call them back. I was thinking it was Terlato. Oh, I'm sorry. Much smaller, much smaller than Terlato. It's Terlano. <laughs> so, well, they're kind of their creme de la creme white wine is called Nova Doma. So, New Dome. It's kind of just referring to this nearby castle tower that overlooks. I think it was one of the, one of the vineyards where they source the grapes from for this particular cuvee. It's a it's a beautiful blend of. Pinot Bianco, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, super full-bodied, mineral-driven. Anyway, it was 40 years. They had aged it 40 years in the cellar. Unbeknownst to us, we had no idea what we were getting in the glass. So we're all, you know, sitting there ready to to smell, taste, swirl, rate, review this wine. And and they're just, they're loving it because they're like, yeah, they know they've got us before we even get in there. And, you know, people are kind of throwing out, oh, nutty, nutty aromas or floral or, well, it was, it was completely, I mean, 40 years old, tertiary. You couldn't tell what it was. It was so remarkable. And it was such an impactful experience because it really 
it really taught the, the idea of not judging a book by the cover. I don't know. I literally didn't know if it was a red wine, a white wine, if it was fortified. You know, I, I did not know anything about it. And to hear them unfold what was in our glass, and again, another gift, a 40-year-old wine that they've decided to share with us to make a point. And um, it was just beautiful. And this this wine is still, I mean, you can still buy every vintage still. I think they have the 2019 out right now. And it's yeah, the Nova Domus Cuvée, and, and they recommend aging it for a decade, but clearly you can go four decades if you would like, and it was, it was outstanding. It was unforgettable. Gee, I wish I was on that trip. Oh, fantastic trip. Yeah, so in, and on, on that same trip was um, we went to Elena Walk in Alta Adige, and her story is just remarkable and ex- inspiring. She's this very accomplished architect who married well, basically, she ended up having this uh, a contract assignment to help update an 17th century Austrian castle in Alta Adige. And attached to this castle, there's this winery and some vineyards. And attached to the winery and vineyards was this man, Werner Walk, who lived there. And they got to know each other and fell in love and got married. So she completely rerouted her course. Instead of going down the architectural line of, of career, she went into winemaking and she learned it and she's been doing it almost 40 years. And now her daughters are taking over, but you've probably had her wines. They're Beyond the Clouds is her kind of her most famous Chardonnay blend. And then I think her single vineyard, Gewürztraminer, is probably one of her other most well-known. It's just an unforgettable, aromatic, intense wine. But to me, these two, these two wines from these two regions, um, I mean, from this one region, just really spoke to what white wines can do in Italy and to what Alto Adige brings to the table. And it was, it was so much fun to write about. I, I didn't even know where to start. I came back just kind of like humming. I'm like, this is so neat. There's so many things that I learned and I saw and I tasted. And um, that, that piece would end up being three or four different pitches for different angles. And, and, you know, so you can cover it. You can't just cover it in one outlet. So that was really fun. It could be a producer profile or wine reviews and ratings or, hey, go visit it yourself. You won't, you won't regret it. It's fantastic. So let's uh, get on a plane and go from Alto Adige to Texas. <laughs> My home state. <laughs> bring things, bring things home. And you were talking about, you know, the impact of COVID and so forth. And you brought up Texas. Sure, sure. So I'm I'm from Texas originally. So I was excited to go back, but I wasn't I wasn't necessarily thinking I'd be going back for wine. But once COVID hit, obviously travel. Yeah, I would have bet against that. <laughs> exactly. yeah, I would have taken that bet. <laughs> well, as you know, everything shut down. We were all grounded for two years, and my. Um, editor at Decanter is like, so what's around you? I'm like, well, I live in Colorado. I'm from Texas. I've got a, I've got a pitch from Idaho wines. She's like, let's do Idaho. I'm like, oh, okay, well, let's do Idaho. So I started getting wines in to rate and review for Idaho and, and write a story. And that was fun and educational and, and unexpected. And then I moved to the Colorado Western Slope and covered my home state and found so much variety. It was really, it was great. A lot of really fantastic white wines coming out of the higher elevations in Colorado, and then went to Texas and and did hill country tours. Actually, I went twice. I was there for a media trip, and then I went back um, a few weeks later on a personal trip. I hit a couple more wineries that I wanted to see when I was there and just saw the breadth and depth of what they're doing. And I will say Tempranillo was probably their standout grape for me, and I, I really enjoyed just seeing that, that Texas hospitality. It's, I mean, it's 
it's remarkable and they've taken it and, and turned it up a notch with, with their wine scene. And it's, it's fantastic. So, awesome. All right. Great food. Great food. Well, we've, we've, we've outrun our time here. I always end my uh, sessions with the question of what's the big takeaway for, for people and recognizing that most of them are in the trade who are listening to this conversation. What's the one thing they can take from what we just discussed and uh, put to work in a commercial way um, in their business? Sure. I think that with the advent of e-commerce and it's just going I mean, gangbusters right now, everybody's getting on the DTC wagon or the e-commerce wagon, and they should, if, if it's really gone up at least 25% in the last two years, e-commerce is going to, is here to stay and is going to play a huge piece um, in, in wine sales and in getting the story to the consumers. And I think words matter and having good content behind that e-commerce, whether it's in the newsletters, the wine club literature, or on, on your site to tell your story authentically. Everybody has a story and some people have to dig a little deeper for, for what theirs is, but there's always a story that needs to be communicated to the consumer that will make your wine set apart from the next wine on the shelf. So I think words matter and words are going to matter even more with e-commerce. Pictures are still great, but words fill in all the blanks. Wow. You know, that's really relevant to the conversation I had um, at in Italy with a supplier who, who couldn't understand the idea of, of a story. And they, they kept going back to, well, you know, uh, we aged the wine in small oak barrels. You know, there are, there's all these production things. You know, you're trying to get to the soul, the heart, the what is the thing that's going to make me, you know, have a big fat grin on my face. Uh, when you tell me that story, and and most of them are they're farmers, okay? They're, that's not their strength. That's our strength. We got trained in that, or I did. Yeah, and that's kind of what you need. It's not a matter of um, asking your child. It's and, and maybe it's calling. Here's a job for a journalist: is interview me, help me figure out what my story is. Got to pull it out of them. Mm -hmm. Well, it's because of preparation, right? We had some conversations before this where we discussed what we were going to talk about. <laughs> Okay. Well, this has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed it. So this is Steve Ray signing off for this week. And please join us again next Monday for another edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. Thanks again for listening. This is Steve Ray with Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.